Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Video program. Ron and Cut, you know how you do it. You know what I'm saying? Live. Broadcasting live from Hutchinson, Kansas. Well, I'm sitting here with a linguist. I had a linguist. no idea. <laughs> I, love I didn't that. know you were, but I didn't know that you were a wordsmith. <laughs> Call Jiggy right now. 267 22 Jiggy. Daddy, hey, Jiggy, what's happening, man? Must be that uh, David Bowie song. Jiggy, play guitar. It's a great name, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Presenting. I'm, I'm Mike Massey, and uh, you know, you can catch me on Jiggy Jag TV and uh, see a few of my tricks up there. Thank you very much. Jiggy Jaguar. I never knew what freedom was until I saw you lose yours. Welcome to a fabulous, fabulous edition of the world famous. Jiggy Jaguar Radio Program, coast to coast to border to border, all tuned iTunes, Radio Loyalty, Stitcher, and the brand new Jiggy Jaguar app available in the App Store, JiggyJaguar.us. You can stream the show live, 24-7 replay, exclusive news and programming information, all available on our app. And uh, we've got Colonel Denny Gillum is going to be with us uh, here in just a few moments. Uh, he is going to join us in this broadcast. And uh, we will chat with him about all sorts of different things. And uh, while we get Colonel Denny Gillum up and running, we've got a pre-tape we're going to run right now so we can get Denny on the telephone. This call is now being recorded. Welcome back to Lineup Media. We have a fantastic, fantastic guest with us today here on the line. We're going to be talking about a great new book. Uh, But before we get into that, we're going to let our guests do their introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself, my friend, and then we'll talk about the book. Sure. Um, so basically, my background is in film and media. Um, okay. I started out, started out by acting in my dad's films when I was a young kid, and Wall Street and The Doors and JFK and Natural Born Killers, and then uh, basically moved into directing and producing and writing my own right. So I did a film called Greystone Park in 2012, and okay. I was on Conspiracy Theory that year, Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura that season. Yes. And then I uh, shifted into doing some media, so I did. Do a, I used to do an online show called Buzzsaw, and that morphed into wow. uh, Watching the Hawks, which is on RT International, Russia Today, the uh, yep. international news channel. And so... Yeah, I mean that's sort of quick bio. Well, that that is that is pretty cool. That that gives you a lot of uh, a lot of background uh, to write this book because uh, we we've we've had some authors on on the show before where they they do their introduction and they tell me a little bit about themselves and then we talk about the book and I'm like, you're not qualified to write anything about this. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, that that you've got a uh, you've got a cool background and we'll, and we'll talk about that throughout the show uh today but uh, I do want to focus at least the first part of the show here 
on this great book. It's uh, New World Order. It's become the uh, cliched catch-all for conspiracy theories in this generation, only rivaled by the Illuminati to describe a nefarious plot to rule the world. Yet, when President George H.W. Bush and Harry Kissinger used the same term, it begs the question, what does the New World Order mean? And in Sean Stone's deeply referenced opus, the answer is obvious. Over the past few centuries since America uh, basically wrestled its freedom from the British Empire, elements both in England and on our home soil have plotted to correct this basic national independence. Now, first of all, tell us a little bit about the book. Um, how did you come to write it? Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the some of the research and stuff that you put into the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically, at Princeton, I had to do my senior thesis for my history degree. Um, yeah, I was tr I was basically trying to figure out a topic, and I came across this character of William Yandel Elliot, who was uh, basically a Henry Kissinger's mentor. Um, he also taught. Big New Brzezinski, uh, Sam Huntington, uh, McGeorge Bundy, and just a whole slew of uh, world leaders. But, you know, this guy was a very interesting character because most people outside of academia will never have heard of him, even outside of Harvard probably never heard of him. Um, but he was Professor Emeritus for 40 years of government and, and history, and he basically um, was a tremendous thinker, intellectual, but he also yeah. was, a net, was he basically connected a lot of big business interests like the Rockefellers, Rockefeller Foundation, with academia, Harvard, and then he also advised six presidents all through the, uh, basically the uh, FDR through Lyndon Johnson administration and Nixon as well. So, you know, he, the, here's this this sort of eminence, eminence grease, and he very much gave Kissinger entree to that world, and that's why, um, so in terms of, you know, wanting to tell a story, I looked into him and who is this character of Elliot. And it's interesting because recently Niall Ferguson did a book on Kissinger, a history of uh, Kissinger, the idealist, about his early years. And he started diving into the Elliot figure, and he referenced my thesis at Princeton for a lot of his research into it because, again, no one really knew who Elliot was outside of certain, certain circles. So I wanted to get into this issue of, okay, this guy is a Rhodes Scholar, and he very much is a figure in the Carol, Carol Quigley sense of what Quigley wrote about, if people know the book, A Tragedy and Hope. Quigley was a tremendous scholar at Georgetown who influenced uh, Clinton, and he was writing about this circle, you know, basically the, Mil the Milner group, he called it. But basically the British, uh, the British intellectuals, pol politicals, pol politicos and intellectuals who very much were trying to recreate the British Empire in the early 20th century and trying to reincorporate America into the British fold as an empire. And this figure of Elliot very much uh, epitomizes what Quigley was trying to describe as far as the influence of the, that, that Anglo-American establishment. Oh, okay. Because, I, and this, this was one thing, and I was really excited when we were going to get you on the show, because... Uh, We've, we've had a lot of different authors and a lot of different guests on, and we've talked back and forth about various things with, with the NWO and some of the different things that, that surround that. And I know a lot of folks tend to um, compare them to the Nazis. A lot of people have said that, you know, after we got rid of Hitler and everything, that, that there still was a little bit of an influence and, and possibly 
they've gotten people into power here in the United States, and a lot of people have said that the NWO is, is sort of like a, a Nazi influence. But you say it's, it's more of a British Empire-type influence. Absolutely, because the, the Nazis were basically a creation of these people. <laughs> yeah. That's the point. Ah, um, okay, yeah, okay. Yes. In fact... The, you know, so, the nature so, of the so essentially, yeah. so so essentially, when you when you look at this, <laughs> and you detail this all in your book, very very expertly, essentially over the years, any time that there needs to be, because I, I, I've noticed this right now with, with with the situation with all these all these ISIS and Middle Eastern, you know, things that are going on there, as far as all these you know different armies. It's it's basically on record that a lot of them basically were were created by the fact that we went into Iraq, we went into um, Syria, we went into some of these places. We got rid of guys like Saddam Hussein who were keeping a lot of these guys down. They don't have anybody to keep them in line, so then they're running wild, and then we arm them. So we essentially, you know, we basically have created a lot of these guys. So you're saying that basically every once in a while, the NWO needs somebody to fight against. So it's kind of like a professional wrestling thing. They go out and they create someone to fight with. So they did that with the Nazis. They've done that now with ISIS. What are some of the other uh, entities over the years that you found through your research that they basically have went through and said, okay, well, we've we got to have somebody to fight against. So uh, those guys, give those guys some guns and let's go for it. Right. Well, I mean, you take the case of the Middle East, and obviously the entire uh, borders, the entire borders of the region, every nation in that region, is essentially a concoction of the British Empire, British and French yeah. working together, yeah. mostly British influence. Yeah. Um, because what happened was, you look at the British Empire at the end of the 20th century, and they're essentially, um, you know, they're the biggest land power in the world. They control a quarter of the planet, but they've just fought the Boer War, and while they've one, the same time they've kept South Africa, but at the same time they've essentially lost. It was like it was just for them it was a, it bled them like 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 Vietnam did us, and they realized we cannot maintain this empire through physical manpower. We don't have the manpower to do it. We need to co-opt the locals. We need to establish the preeminence of British law and um, you know economic ideas in the world. We need to basically arrange as much as possible through international treaties and agreements, but we want to basically be the main power behind those agreements. We don't want to actually let other countries have a say. So you had their main rivals at the time, remember, was the Germans. The German the German Empire was yeah. tremendously strong, yeah. organized. They were vying with them on the seas for naval power. They were looking to move into uh, Middle East. They were building a railroad from Baghdad to I'm sorry, from Berlin to Baghdad, and they were basically working yep. with the Ottomans who controlled, the Ottoman Empire controlled the Middle East. So the British started to work on this uh, sort of alliance system, right, moving the Russians into a position, even though the Russians were the biggest economic partners of the Germans, as far as the Germans had most imports and exports going to Russia, and had, you know, yeah. there's a natural alliance because they're neighbors, essentially. That you would want, you know, they would want us. Uh, they they could control Eurasia, and so the British thinkers, like Alfred Mackinder, were saying we have to control the heartland, because if not, 
the Russians, who are in the center of Europe, can basically run the continent without the British Navy and uh, shipping routes having any say. So we need to basically control the heartland, which is what? The Middle East, basically from the Nile to, um, you know, you'd say like basically about Pakistan, uh, that region, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then in the west it would be sort of uh, the Balkans. So this, this is what they call the heartland region of the world. And it's saying this is the underbelly of Eurasia because between Russia, China, Germany, and Western Europe, you have all the grain, you have all the minerals, resources, you have all the population. You don't need the rest of the world if these guys got together, if China, Russia, and Germany allied, for example. So the whole strategy was always to look at the heartland and work to destabilize or fight. That's why the Russians, Russians were always the British enemy all through the 19th century. You know, the British were working against them initially via the Ottomans and then uh, in the Great Game in Afghanistan. So you had this tremendous uh, fight going on. But then when the Germans started opposing the British rule, the, the, I'm sorry, the British had to then reshape, reshift their orientation, ally with the Russians, and essentially precipitate World War I. Now, to what degree, it was more thrown up. It, it, there, was a lot of, there was a lot of gamesmanship that was going on. Ultimately, the Germans fell into the British trap, and they fall into this bloody war. Now, what happens during the World War I that really sets off the entire 20th century is that the Americans joined the British, which actually makes no sense for American history. I mean, we talk about what, what is America as a, a republic that, that well, and itself see, against and British see, this, colonialism. This is the thing that, that, that you've, been, you've been explaining this experts with, with this, and I know that you talk about this in your book. Um, the, the situation with, with a lot of these... Uh, you know, situations like that, like you were saying, it's, it's, it's strange to think that the United States would, would get away from the British and then go right back with them <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and do all this. Um, I didn't mean to catch you off there. I just thought that was, that, 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 that's an excellent point. Go ahead and continue with what you were saying, yeah. my friend. No, absolutely. So that's, that's the entire point that people miss in terms of understanding history is why does America ally with the British in the First World War? There's no natural. You can't say, well, because we speak the same language, sure, but there's this, the German population is pretty large in America. We've, you know, frankly, the British king is actually German by blood. Um, there's a lot of old relationships between Germany and England. Um, at, you know, at, as far as bloodlines are concerned, and then as far as America is concerned, yeah, we have a lot of German influence here too. So, why do we ally with the British against the Germans? Um, that's where you get the influence of what is the origin of the New World Order concept. But basically, these this Anglo-American imperial system that's starting to work itself into play, and essentially it works itself into Woodrow Wilson's mentality and mindset to ally with the British, and, uh, you know, again, that was something that, you know, we get more into detail in the book, but I think was conspiratorial, because you have to look at the issue of um, the sinking of Lusitania, which was, which was basically a passenger liner that the, the Germans' uh, submarines sank, but, and everyone was, was horrified because, oh, we killed, they killed civilians, but guess what, there were, there were guns, <laughs> there was, there, we were shipping guns and weapons to the British aboard this ship. So it's basically, we've already started arming the British, and as we know, the, the, the J.P. Morgan faction of banking, which J.P. Morgan itself is actually originally a British bank, um, the partner, Grenfell, was in England, and J.P. Morgan was trained in England. Um, so essentially, 
you know, the British Bank of J.P. Morgan is the one financing uh, the bonds, the, the British bonds to fight the war. So they have millions at stake, obviously, by us, you know, joining and making sure that we, that the, that the British win the war. But essentially, the, the First World War should never have come to any conclusion. It should have been a draw. Both, everyone should have gone back to their lines and moved forward, right? That would have been the natural, practical thing. Instead, the British, with the American support, end up winning the war. The Jiggy Jaguar radio program is back on the network. Welcome back to our world-famous Jiggy Jaguar radio program, coast-to-coast coast and border-to-border, on TuneIn, iTunes, Radio Loyalty, Stitcher, brand-new Jiggy Jaguar app available in the App Store, JiggyJaguar.us. You can stream the show live, 24-7 replay, exclusive news and programming information, all available on our app. JiggyJaguar.us. Also check out JiggyJaguar.com. Uh, we are going to post the full interview of uh, that, that the last guest, the NWO author, at JagShow.com. That's J-A-G-S-H-O-W.com. Check out the podcast over there. Our next guest on the line, Dr. Melinda Sue Norin. She is the author of Knowledge Management. And she's with us today here on our big broadcast. Uh, doctor, how are you on this fabulous, fabulous day? I'm wonderful. And how are you doing, James? Pretty good, actually. Now, uh, you have got a, a lot going on. You've got a, a great book out there. It's all up here, The Value of Application of Knowledge Management. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book, because this this sounds incredible. Well, the book stemmed from research, uh, doctoral thesis research, and as a consultant for over 30 years with major organizations, I gathered that there was a bit of a problem that wasn't being discussed. And one of the clients I was working with worked in a restaurant, and she said, the employees keep the information, it's all up here. And she pointed to her forehead, and I said, yes, yes, I hear a lot of that. (laughs) So so an employee in a company, I work with companies where, you know, everybody's a regular person. They go to work. They learn what they need to do. They do their job. But from an organizational perspective, they don't always share their information. They don't always know what to share. Somebody might start working and not do a job well, and if we're a consumer, we say, well, why don't they know their job? So for organizations to have a better handle on the information flow, I decided this was a really worthwhile topic. It was one that was uh, not as researched and as discussed as it needed to be for the large organizations, and even a new startup. We've, that's, well, that's the bottom line. That's how I came to, <laughs> to take on such a topic because it's a mouthful to say it's it's all up here. The value and application of knowledge management. It's like what? <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Norin with us yep. today here on our broadcast. Now, um, knowledge management is a uh, is an interesting topic, and we're talking with her today about this. What are the different types of knowledge? Well, most people think if I can tell you what I know, if I can tell you how to, uh, let's say, create a radio show, 
you find a guest, you uh, interview them, you let the audience know who's going to be on the show. You can itemize the tasks on what you do. But the, the, the value of this particular topic is the, the different types of knowledge start with the explicit and implicit. I can tell you what you need to do to do my job, but the real secret is in the tacit knowledge, T-A-C-I-T, and that's the stuff that makes you special in what you do in your job. So, James, you'll have all kinds of skills and techniques and relationships and tidbits that make you very good in what you do. And that's really the best definition I can give you of what knowledge management is, the knowledge management that isn't getting shared. Many people will get hired and they'll be told what to do, very explicit steps. Show up at 8 o'clock, open up this file, do that work, <laughs> talk to that customer, but they're not told what the best of the best do. It's kind of like their little secret sauce, right? Yes, so, yes. So that tacit knowledge is what gets lost in organizations. It's not what I can tell you to do or what you get in training. It's what makes you really special. So it's identifying an employee at any level, management or just a, a new person that comes in with some great skills and saying, how is it that you're really so wonderful? And that's not a common thing <laughs> in organizations. So it's, it's recognizing the, the greatness of an employee. They could be brand new and they're wonderful and other employees might be threatened by them, but they have a way of doing something that makes your company, your organization, your business better. We well, I'll, I'll have to say, Dr. Noren, you are fantastic. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. She joins us live here on our broadcast. Now, um, why did you write a book on this topic? Uh, this topic was uh, not, as I went into organizations, and I should mention that I didn't go into five or ten or a hundred or five hundred. In my years as a consultant, I've actually gone into probably um, 500, 800, 800 would be uh, an accurate amount of organizations. And they're all like a family. And some are dysfunctional and some are wonderful. <laughs> some embrace you when you walk in the door and it's, it's just the warmest, coziest place to be. And some people look at you, you are five minutes late. I don't care that you had to drop off three children. This organization runs very efficiently. <laughs> so you have a spectrum of organizations and how they gather and share or withhold information is unique. And many uh, people have said they're not getting the information they need. And sometimes I meet people in organizations and they don't have the information they need. And I know it and I'm an outsider because I've worked with their organization. So there's a knowledge flow problem. There's a breakdown. And so this book was written, uh, the intent is to have employers and employees look at the way information travels 
throughout their organization and say, well, can we do this better? That's the ultimate bottom line. Can we do this better? How can we be excellent? How can we compete with the other businesses? How can we be the most efficient government organization? How can we uh, be the most profitable organization? So there's a lot of value in stopping and looking and evaluating and redesigning how the information flows in an organization. We've got... That's why, yeah. Yes. I said, hey, I think I can help. That's that's fantastic. We've got uh, Dr. Norrin with us today. She joins us live here in our broadcast. Now, what examples of problems do organizations have with their knowledge management? Well, let's say you were just the best in your job. You are management level. You're paid very, very well. One of the problems with the flow of information is you may not want to share it. You happen to like your very secure, well-paid job up at the top of the um, organizational chain, and you're not going to share it because it's yours. And that actually did come up in a company, and that was part of the motivation for this, this research and book, was an organization had an employee that knew everything. They could not fire them. They were a great employee, but they refused to share. And there was nothing on uh, and then job responsibility that said they had to share. So they were just the expert in the job, and they refused. <laughs> and it was a family-run business, and it was a very difficult challenge. Uh, in another situation, um, the employee had a medical problem in their family. It wasn't them. They were so distraught that while information needed to be passed along, it was a one-person office they were out handling a personal emergency that was huge and the organization missed a certified letter that led to uh, um, was part of a lawsuit that led to a very very heavy fine it was a certified letter nobody knew to open it nobody knew what was in it nobody knew it was there so the knowledge transfer process gets broken and the company can end up having fines penalties um, embarrassments, uh, poor public relations, etc. So uh, going back to why don't they share, in that case, the person had a personal emergency. They were a good employee. They meant well. They had a personal in, uh, emergency that just stepped on their, their opportunity to be the very best. It's not always intentional. Sometimes you're so good in your job, James, you're such a good interviewer, you don't even think about the the way in which you're going to ask. You you don't even think about the questions. You don't think about, it comes to you naturally. You know how to research. You know how to present the questions. You know how to keep the conversation going. It's your expertise, and it's so natural to you, you don't even think to transfer it to another person. So sometimes it's just subconscious. Very often with downsizing or with an employee getting another job and leaving quickly, there just isn't enough time to transfer the information. And when there's just not enough time to transfer the information, the organization loses valuable insight. And that's, that's really unfortunate. If, uh, if I was to quote one of uh, my favorite quotes on what is knowledge management, it's the process by which an organization generates wealth from its intellectual and knowledge-based assets. That would be people. It generates its wealth 
from its people. So when somebody leaves the job and they don't have time to share what they were doing, or most importantly, how they did it well, then um, that's another way in which information is not shared. Sometimes it's political. Look at James. I don't want you to tell anyone this, but dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and so sometimes they, they are not privy to uh, passing along certain information about an organization. So there's actually a, a number of reasons you, uh, I found quite interesting why employees didn't share the knowledge that they could have. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. She joins us live here in our broadcast. Dr. Norrin joins us. And uh, 27 minutes after the hour, thanks for joining us here on our world-famous Cheeky Jaguar radio program, coast-to-coast and border-to-border on Red Nation Radio today. Now, um, why don't employees share knowledge? Well, they, they sometimes don't know that they have special knowledge to share. Also, James, they... they they're not malicious. Well, sometimes they are. I don't want to say that. Uh, malicious is not the right word. Sometimes they want to withhold it for their own personal profit. For example, if Bill Gates had told everyone how to run Windows the way he knew and does, he would not get his $1 per program, uh, I believe that's what it was, as it was installed in every computer, and he would not be the mega-billionaire he is today. Uh, that was based on his very special expertise. So sometimes somebody has an idea that can be very, very profitable. And to share that with an organization is m- not their intent. Uh, so well, I'll give you an example. In an organization I worked for, uh, one of the management level executives walked by and they said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm making a book. I'm making a book on this particular topic in our organization to help. And he said, oh, can I have a copy of that book? And I said, yeah, sure, of course you can, your management. So he ran off a copy and then he left the company and he took the concepts with. And so uh, sometimes it's better not to share certain things or to set guidelines. Organizations do not, in my opinion, from the ones that I visited, set up enough guidelines on what to talk about and what not to talk about in and out of the organization. There was an aerospace company I worked, for, worked with, and they, um, they had transportation that was separate for their employees because they did not want them discussing their work to or from work. So they set up their own van pool program. So how knowledge is managed in an organization is very unique. It's it's fun and it's interesting. I mean, the organization, in order to share the the information, I'll just uh, mention one other aspect of the information. It's not just that they're going to withhold it or not share it. In order to share it, one, the organization has to obtain it. They use it. They have to learn it. They have to get everybody's contribution to the knowledge. And then they have to find a way of packaging it so that it's readily available to a new hire, to somebody joining the company from another location. Uh, They have to sustain the quality of the information. And then they have to say, hey, this is old stuff. We don't do this anymore, and divest information. So there's a whole process to managing how an organization can run very well. 
and I consider it like a first aid kit. It's a first aid kit. It's like an earthquake emergency kit for every organization to look at the process. What if there's a fire? What if there's an earthquake? I'm on the e uh, I'm on the West Coast, so that's a very common discussion. What if there's an emergency where the person you need with the knowledge you need is unavailable? And interestingly, James, most people leave not just for another job. They're unavailable because of illness or injury. It's not just the fact that they've left the company. Surprise events happen all the time, and critical intel is not stored in a way to transfer easily. We've got a uh, great yeah. guest with us today. She joins us live here on the telephone, coast to coast to border to border. Dr. Norin joins us. <laughs> and uh, what happens if companies don't get the knowledge from employees before they leave? Uh, well, there's, there's lots of uh, things that can go wrong. Like, let's say uh, you're trying to watch your budget. Every company is trying to be more profitable, most companies, most for-profit companies. If somebody leaves without sharing their knowledge, the person who follows will spend more time learning. So if I could say, James, you know, the way I get my radio guests is I look at the bestsellers, I look at what's topical in the news, and then that's how I get my, my guests. So I've given you insight to do the job well. You would share that with me. You're, you're the person that's got the insight somebody joins in the company and they don't know what to do, they might say, hey, you know what, I'm at a gas station and I'm curious, how do you, how do you sell gas at this gas station? Do you know what I mean? They won't have a topic that might be pertinent to their audience. So you have, you have major organizations in, in Kansas and Texas, and if, if they have 20,000 employees, if they have 50,000 employees at a, at a university, at a medical facility, at a governmental agency, where and how do they start logging this information before an employee leaves to make it easily uh, transferable? So my recommendation is that an organization put in the job responsibilities that an employee will outline what they do, what the relationships are, what recommendations they have, what predictions they have. I predict that sales are going to increase if we do such and such. And this will add to uh, an employee leaving and not sharing the right information. If there's unions involved, uh, involved that's uh, when an employee can also say, I don't have to share information. So what happens is uh, it takes longer to transfer the information. And that's always a concern if a company is trying to be profitable. And let's say, I'll give you another example. Have you ever had blood drawn? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Everybody's had blood drawn at one time or another. Well, because I watch how people do things, I like to find people that are excellent in their job. I seek the one that's the fastest at the cash register. I like the one who's the most articulate when they're going to be a teacher for uh, training me. Okay, so I had to have uh, blood drawn like everybody else does in a routine checkup years and years ago. And there were two lines 
and one line had a woman who was having difficulty and another line was moving very quickly and just by chance I was the next one to sit in the seat with the woman who had difficulty drawing blood and as a knowledge flow person expert <laughs> uh, I said this woman is not as good as the other woman this is a painful experience she's poked me twice and she can't do this job well and I stood up as a consumer and I said I hope you don't mind I'm gonna wait for the other person and while it offended the young lady she looked at me frustrated I thought well how many times will I as a consumer <laughs> allow a process to be done that's not okay so from the customer's point of view, they're looking at the quality and competence of an employee, just as much as an employee needs to transfer information. And what could have happened in that organization, had I made a recommendation, it would have been that the very talented person who could find a vein and snap your fingers, get what they needed, and you're, you're out of there, they needed to transfer very important skills to the other person because they did not have the same skill base. And it could have been taught, but it wasn't. And that could be with customer relations, that could be with how to run meetings uh, efficiently, that could be with just the compassion for a coworker when you're management. So you get a new manager and they know all that they need to do, but they don't have the emotional intelligence, the compassion. They don't ask you, how's your day? They just say, okay, this is what we're gonna do. And so they are not as good in their job as somebody else. So the, the transfer of knowledge, what you really wanna get from an employee leaving an organization, how did you do your job well? What made you special? How can we pass that along so that our company continues to be profitable, sustainable, and excellent? We've got a great guest with us today. She joins us live here on the telephone. Dr. Norn joins us. Uh, what are some of the best ways to help a company gather and share critical knowledge? Well, that's the, that's the million-dollar question. The first thing an organization has to do, James, is they have to look at what information is walking out the door. I think that is one of the first places to look at the exit interview is there an exit interview? Do you say, hey, Melinda, Dr. Norn, what did you think about this organization? Well, I thought it was okay, but I got a job that paid me more, so I'm leaving. Okay, that's not a competent use of time for an exit interview. What you want to know is what are all the things that you did in this job? What things can you pass along that will make the job easier for someone else? What were your competencies? that made you one of the best in the organization? Um, was it your confidence? Was it your memory? Was it handling rejection? Did you listen well? Did you have a positive attitude? Were you really friendly? Were you objective? Were you diplomat diplomatic? Did you have great negotiation skills? I mean, what is it that really was lacking as you leave the organization? that you would like to see in, in the company or in your, um, in your position as somebody else fills it. So in the process, 
catch that exit interview and make it valuable. Make sure that you get useful knowledge to pass along. Um, uh, see how it can be packaged so that somebody can easily in, incorporate the information. We have different languages, different cultures, different habits. We come from different families. We come from so many different varieties of uh, knowledge and communication. Make sure when you're packaging information for somebody to take over a job responsibility that it's packaged in a way that doesn't offend anyone, it's easy to understand, it's transferable. And a great way to transfer information is through storytelling. And my example would have been going to the doctor and having one person poke me and poke me and it hurt, and another person just like they were done and you never knew they, they touched your arm. Or it would be the person who's very efficient in their job and they tell others, hey, I've got to tell you a story. This is what happened. I went to a company and they asked me all about our, our services and this is what I told them and I did my job uh, so efficiently that they want to now place an order. Or uh, this company had a problem. I went out at 8 o'clock at night on Thanksgiving and I helped them. And because of that, they're a loyal company forever. So how did you problem solve for your organization? Um, that's the kind of stuff you want to capture and transfer. Um, we also might want to have somebody that is new in the job provide unique skills, maybe technological skills or social media skills to somebody that has had their job a long time and it's something they want to learn. The younger people going into jobs, the millennials and the Generation Z, that would be the people born after the year 2000. This group of people, they're quick thinking, fast workers, they want to keep learning. So part of having a good knowledge management program is to share new information that they find valuable. And um, you can also hook up with other companies that do similar type things and share if they're open to it, uh, how they do their job well. So it's a community sharing information. You can set up this information on uh, a smartphone program, an app. Uh, you can create a game out of the information an employee needs to learn in the work environment and make it fun. You can use uh, all kinds of uh, social media to make the learning process continually available. Well, before, before we let you go, uh, how do we find you online and interact with you? Oh, you're Well, this has been a really interesting interview. I uh, have shared so much information. If anyone has any questions, I www.thecompanydoctor.biz. The 
Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you, Doctor. We're going to take a time out. Donna Carol Voss. is a Josh Bernstein News Minute powered by AMAC. So as it turns out, Hillary Clinton is not the first woman to win the nomination for president. That honor goes to Victoria Woodhull, a leader of the women's suffrage movement back in 1872. However, Hillary Clinton does garner the distinction of becoming the first presidential nominee to win the nomination while under FBI federal investigation. If she is indicted, over 50% of Democrats unbelievably say that they will still vote for her. I know four Trump supporters, though, who would never support Hillary Clinton. Their names are Christopher Stevens, Glenn Doherty, Tyrone Woods, and Sean Smith. This has been a Josh Bernstein News Minute. I'm Josh Bernstein, and you're up to date. Jiggy Jaguar radio program continues. It is the world famous Jiggy Jaguar radio program. Coast to coast, to border to border on TuneIn, iTunes, Radio Loyalty, Stitcher, and of course, the brand new Jiggy Jaguar app available in the App Store. JiggyJaguar.us. Stream the show live, 24-7 replay, exclusive news and programming information all available on our app. Good stuff. Um, was browsing the radio uh, job postings earlier today, and I noticed that Spencer, Iowa, is still trying to hire a news director. Um, they promoted their they they when they originally were going to bring me in. They had three other candidates they were talking to besides me, and I needed to let them know. Because if not, they were gonna, they were gonna hire one of those three. Now we all know that's bullshit. Because nobody wants to do radio. Nobody wants to do regular BS mainstream radio. Nobody wants to do it. And so they didn't have three people that had probably even applied, much less were talking to. So when I decided to not go to Spencer, Iowa, they took Ryan Long, who was their news director, and moved him up into the morning show position. And basically, uh, he got promoted. <laughs> I don't know how you go from news director to morning show host, and that's a promotion, but whatever. So then they decided that they would... Um, get a news director. And so they've been trying to hire a news director for the longest time. 
They can't get anybody to come to Spencer, Iowa. Which I'll tell you, Spencer, Iowa, it's not that bad of a place. I think if uh, if if they would move Ryan Long back down and they could, uh, you know, give me the spot of doing the morning show, I'd, I'd jump in there and I'd do the damn thing. They'd have to pay me a pretty good amount of money to come there. They'd have to uh, Kevin Talab, Kevin Talab, Kevin Talab. I don't know. That's the most horrible impression of a radio person. We don't do that here. We do that on more. We do that over on more. More one oh four nine. Kevin Talam. See that that's that sounds like Kevin Talam. The big star. Star stage and string screen Kevin Kevin Talam. Uh we tried to get rid of Doctor Norrin quick enough so we could get Donna Carol Voss on. Uh, haven't heard back from Donna Caravas. Hopefully she will give us a call back and we will get her on the air with us. That, that or I'll just spend the next, uh, 12 minutes or so here, uh, doing, uh, Kevin to Lamb impressions on the air. And I'll say, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that over on KICT. We would do that over on Moore. He is... <laughs> I liked the folks in Spencer, Iowa. It just it just wasn't going to work because there was nowhere to live. That town is growing so much, there is nowhere to live. There are no houses. There are no apartments available. I couldn't find anywhere to live. <laughs> just, so... You know, I didn't take the job. It was either that or living on the street. I'm not going to live on the street and do radio. I have done enough to not have to do that. But uh, Donna Carol Voss should join us here in a few moments. Uh, coming up on our next edition of the world-famous Cheeky Chigwa radio program. See, that's how you do it. The next edition. Jeffrey Stevens will join Don Mazzella, Dan Perkins, and IQ Al Rosoli. Which, by the way, I need to pull up my deal here. The only Jaw's birthday is today. I don't know who the only Jaw is. The only Jaw. The only Jaw, lady. She's the only Jaw. He's going to have a birthday today. Kevin Tulab with the birthday club. We do that over there on more. See, all, all my eyes. <laughs> let me, let me, let me, let me tell you that reference. All my ideas, <laughs> all my damn ideas that I had for those people, I I kept pitching various ideas, and they kept telling me. Over and over and over again, they were like, well, we don't do that over here. We do that over on more. I'm like, you pretty much do everything on your more station. <laughs> I'm like, guys. <laughs> it's like, you're taking all my ideas. We don't do that over here on KICD. 
We do that over on more. We do that on more. It's like, dude, you gotta calm down. We don't do that over here. We do that over on more. We do that on the more station. Oh, and I uh, I recently applied for another job in the uh, the Saga Communications universe, and uh, it was with this uh, this this more station um, out in God. Where was it? Was it Iowa? Probably on the other side of Iowa. And I just. It's like they have the same thing over and over and over and over. Well, we don't do that over there. We do it over on more. It's like suck a penis, dude. Suck a penis. That's probably another reason why I'm not working there is because I'm uttering the phrase suck a penis. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is the wrap-up today here on Red Nation Radio. Tune in, iTunes, Radio Loyalty. Get a hold of us on our brand new app, JiggyJaguar.us. You can stream the show live, 24-7 replay, exclusive news and programming information, podcasts available, and videos can be watched inside of our app. Do it all. Do it up. Do it to it. Whatever. We've got more coming up next time on the World Famous Jaguar Radio Program. Peace and I'm out of my Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.